The following is a message from Christ the King Presbyterian Church in Roanoke, Virginia. For more information about the ministry of Christ the King, please visit us at ctkroanoke.org. Due to technical difficulties, the first couple of minutes of the sermon was cut off. It was mainly the reading of the passage, Romans 6, 1 through 14. Uh, uh, into girls and guys groups as teenagers uh, to talk about sensitive topics and struggles. They wanted to divide us for obvious reasons. And, um, and early on, uh, I think probably the first day we met, our leader, he laid down this challenge. He said, I challenge you guys to memorize chapter 6 of Romans, first 14 verses. And all I needed to hear was that it was a challenge. And so I, I was very competitive, and I, I said, okay, I'm going to do that. And I did. Um, and um, I couldn't recite it to you from memory today. But this passage has remained very, very familiar to me throughout my life. Uh, it's played a significant role in shaping how I've sought to live as a follower of Jesus. And maybe that's the same for some of you as well. And you know, I think, I think this would delight the Apostle Paul. You see, if you're at all familiar with the life of Paul, then you probably know that he wasn't always a follower of Jesus. Instead, he had rejected him vehemently early on. And he zealously persecuted those who were following him. In fact, in that well-known passage in Acts chapter 9, where we see Paul traveling on the road to Damascus, he was actually on his way to arrest and detain more Christians. But it was there instead that he had an unforeseen encounter with the risen Lord Jesus himself. And it was in the immediate aftermath of that overwhelming encounter that he understood for the first time, something of the astounding grace of the Lord Jesus Christ for sinners, and that he himself was a sinner in need of that grace. And from that moment on, his life was never the same. All his former boasts and claims of piety, that he was a Benjamite, that he was a Hebrew of Hebrews, that he was a Pharisee, a keeper, a zealous keeper of the law. Everything for Paul. From that moment on, he considered as he tells the Philippians, in order that he might gain Christ and be found in him. His old identity and his former way of life had come to an end on that road. He was no longer Saul, the fierce persecutor of the people of God. Instead, he had become, as the late New Testament scholar F.F. F. Bruce used to call him, Paul, the apostle of the heart set free. And friends, it is the climactic, life-changing, identity-transforming effects of Paul's encounter with Jesus on the road to Damascus that we see animating, that we see saturating all of his New Testament letters and certainly his letter to the Romans. In fact, in our study of Romans up to this point, we've already seen Paul carefully rehearsing 
the basic outline of the gospel of grace. And he's reminded us, for example, that, that we're all sinners, justly condemned by a righteous God and deserving of his judgment. And he's reminded us, too, that God in the fullness of time and in his, in his infinite wisdom and love and grace, he put forth his own sinless son as a propitiation, as an offering to bear our sin and shame and on the cross to suffer the condemnation that we deserve so that we might be justified and reconciled to a righteous God. You know, he's also reminded us that God did all of this, every bit of it. As he says in Romans 5, while we were still sinners. Friends, did you hear that? The gospel of grace, the good news of the gospel that transformed the life of Paul, this gospel is about God reconciling us to himself through the blood of Jesus, while we were still sinners, undeserving of his acquittal, and rightly deserving his wrath and condemnation. Last week, Paul put it this way at the end of the passage in Romans 5.20. He said, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. In other words, for Paul, who had come to know the depths of his own sin... The gospel of the Lord Jesus heralded the triumph of grace over sin. No matter how deep and dark he found out his sin to be, Paul had come to understand that God's grace is sufficient to cover it. And of course, what we're talking about here right now is simply basic Christian teaching. I know, but it's astonishing, isn't it? Oh, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found, was blind, but now I see. Brothers and sisters, the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ is indeed a gospel of amazing grace. And yet as a preacher of this gospel... Paul's message of the triumph of God's amazing, abounding grace, it could, be, it could be grossly misunderstood. It could be taken to suggest that since God had abundantly poured out his grace while we were sinners, or that we should, we should go on sinning, or perhaps we should even further increase our sinning, and so bask in the ever-abounding and triumphant grace of the Lord. In other words, his message could be seen as giving license to sin. And in fact, some of Paul's opponents had already criticized him for promoting this very thing, slanderously accusing him in Romans 3.8 of encouraging Christians to do evil so that good may come of it. But for Paul, this was an absurd accusation. And at this point in the letter, he was ready to address it head on. And, and so we see him turn his attention at the beginning of chapter 6, and we see him ask a simple rhetorical question. What shall we say then? Are we to remain in sin so that grace may increase? 
Is this the way it's actually supposed to be? Does God's grace really imply some type of quid pro quo to the Christian life? As if we're to say to God, we'll keep up our end of the bargain, Lord. Sinning as usual. And we'll trust you to keep doling out the grace in return. Be kind of like what W.H. Auden once said. I like committing crimes. God likes forgiving them. Really, the world is admirably arranged. Is this the way it's supposed to be? Paul seems to ask. But friends, I want you to notice that as quickly as Paul raises the question, we see him adamantly reject it. Saying in verse 2, by no means. How can we who died to sin live in it? You see, for Paul, the very suggestion was an absurdity. And that's because he understood fundamentally that the Christian life begins with a dying to sin. In coming to Christ in repentance and faith, the believer's old life in Adam to use the language of last week's passage, a life of slavery to sin, a life marked by shame and futility of self-effort, a life marked by condemnation, that life has come to an end. It's dead. And this is a point that Paul drives home repeatedly throughout this passage. Our old self was crucified. Crucified, he says in verse 6. We've died and we're now dead to sin, he says in verses 7 and 11. We've been brought from death to life, he says in verse 13. You see, in these verses, Paul personifies sin as a wicked ruler over a wicked realm whose power over us has been broken in the dying we've experienced in coming to Christ. As Paul says in verse 14, his, that is, sin's dominion over us is no more. We've left his tyrannical realm. And we've been delivered, as as Paul says in Colossians 1, from the domain of darkness and transferred to the kingdom of the Lord's beloved Son. And friends, the clear implication of this deliverance is, as Michael Berg Riley puts it, We as Christians cannot reside in sinland when the government posts our obituaries in its local newspaper. Now, while this death and deliverance is indeed truly good news for the believer, it does raise an important question for us. You see, if coming to Christ involves the death of our old selves as they were found in Adam... And it would therefore be absurd for us, as Paul's just made clear, to go on sinning, living as if our old selves were still alive in Adam and in the realm of sin. Where then is life to be found? Well, the answer Paul hammers home over and over again as he continues in verses 3 through 10 is that the believer's life is found not in Adam and not in sin, but in union with the risen and living Savior, Jesus Christ. 
I want you to notice how often Paul uses the phrase with him or with Christ in this section. In verse 4, he says that we were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. In verse 5, he says, if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. In verse 6, he says, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. And in verse 8, he says, now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we also will live with him. We don't have time this morning to unpack the richness of all of what Paul says in these verses. But I think it's particularly significant that Paul begins by drawing our attention in verse 4 to our baptisms. Notice again what he says there. He says that we were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. In order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So what's the point here? Why does he bring baptism up? Well, you see, for Paul, baptism was a picture of the share we have as believers in the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. He saw it as a fitting image of the union we have with Christ in all of these things by faith through the work of the Holy Spirit. And this is why our own confession refers to baptism as a visible sign and seal of the Holy Spirit's invisible work of engrafting us into Christ. But you know, Paul's point here in drawing our attention to our baptisms isn't mainly to give us a sort of uh, mini-theology of baptism. Instead, I think he's simply inviting us to trace the trajectory of the Christian life through it and to reflect on the significance of this trajectory in relation to how we are to live now as those united to Christ. Are we to continue in sin so that grace might abound? No. Paul says, you've been baptized. Don't you remember? You've been united to him in his death and burial. And what's more, you're a participant, even now, in his resurrection. Brothers and sisters, your baptism is meant to be a reminder of these things to you. You see, there's a beautiful and empowering and reassuring progression to the Christian life pictured in baptism that Paul desperately wants his readers and you and me to hear. Yes, Christ died to sin once for all, as he says in verse 10. And by faith, we've participated in that death. The old man is dead and there's no going back. But Christ was also raised by the power of the Spirit. And by faith union with Christ, we too have the hope of not only one day being clothed in immortality when the Lord returns in glory, but 
we also have the present assurance that we live even now in him and by the power of his vivifying and life-transforming spirit. John Stott puts it this way. He says, life is resurrection anticipated. Resurrection is life consummated. Friends, the Apostle Paul understood this. He was so captivated by it that he could say in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. And it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And similarly, he could say in 2 Corinthians 5.17, So then, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. What is old has passed away. Look, what is new has come. Brothers and sisters, as those who have put their faith in the Lord Jesus and been united to him, we are, as N.T. Wright has said, resurrection people. And we stand on resurrection ground. And yet we need to be careful here, don't we? I mean, I think if we're honest, we'd all admit that it doesn't always feel like we're resurrection people standing on resurrection ground. After all, as Christians, we still are tempted to sin. And in our weakness, we oftentimes give in to these temptations to our shame. And it feels like the old man is still alive and kicking. And we're still living in that old sinful realm. Now we need to be careful not to misunderstand Paul's point here. And get, as Michael Bird puts it, too triumphalistic. Or overcook our union with Christ as if we're already glorified. As if we already have the whole package. As if our pews are thrones in the new Jerusalem. No. You see, Paul understood that because we still live for the moment in time and space and with mortal bodies, there's a daily battle for us to fight against indwelling sin. And this is why at the end of this passage in verses 11 through 14, we see him shift gears a bit and give prohibitions and commands that are meant to govern our ongoing life as followers of Jesus. And so we hear him say things like, let not sin reign, therefore, in your mortal body. Don't present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness. Instead, present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. And you know, Paul's use of the word instruments here, I think, is significant. You see, it's a word that generally means weapons. It's the word hopla. We get the word hoplite, if you know anything about Greek, ancient Greek uh, warfare. And in fact, it's translated like weapons in places like Romans 13 and 2 Corinthians 6. And so Paul's point here is to remind us that by virtue of our union with Christ... We've been enlisted in the Lord's army. And our whole selves, our heads, our hands, our hearts, our desires, every member, all of who we are, is to be placed at his disposal as righteous 
weaponry. And so daily, moment by moment, wherever we are and whatever circumstances we find ourselves in, we're to throw off the old self with its practices. We're to put to death the deeds of the flesh. And instead, we're to walk in step with the Spirit in whose power we live because we're resurrection people. For sin no longer has any authority to command our allegiance. We are not under law, Paul says, as he brings this to a close. But we're under grace. Well, but perhaps you're, you're here this morning. And Paul's call in these final verses to take up arms, as it were, in an ongoing battle against sin... His call here doesn't stir your heart, it overwhelms it. Your past and present failures to walk in newness of life rather than in your old ways of sin. These things rise up and accuse you of disloyalty to Jesus. And they whisper that you're unfit to be enlisted in his army. And that you should just quit. Quit his service. And shuffle back to the ranks of your old master. You know, brothers and sisters, don't misunderstand what I'm saying. We need to listen to the convicting voice of the Holy Spirit. And we ought to sincerely confess and repent when we fail. But I also want you to notice something of vital significance for the Christian life. You see, the first command that Paul gives in this passage, it isn't actually found in verse 12. Instead, it's found in verse 11. And there Paul says this. He says, so you too. Consider, consider yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Did you catch that? He tells us first... Before he gives any other command or prohibition, consider yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. In other words, he tells us in our ongoing battle against indwelling sin, first and foremost, to remember who we are by virtue, not of our own effort, but by virtue of the Lord's grace. That we are even now, despite our seeming frailty, really and truly united to the risen and living Lord by the power of the Spirit. Brothers and sisters, this is the starting point for living the Christian life. And this is where we draw power to block the ever-present slings and arrows of the enemy. You see, Paul's not calling us in these final verses, as I've said many, many times before, to some sort of sola bootstrap of Christianity. No. Our obedience and our faithfulness, it doesn't begin and it doesn't flow from our own efforts. It begins and flows from our faith in what God in Christ has done for us. Consider yourselves first and foremost dead to sin and alive to God. And you know, I love how John Stott captures what Paul says here. When he says, 
this consideration. This isn't screwing up our faith to believe what we do not believe. We're not to pretend that our old nature has died when we know perfectly well it hasn't. Instead, we are to realize and remember that our former self did die with Christ, thus putting an end to its career. We are to consider what, in fact, we are, namely dead to sin and alive to God like Christ. Friends, once we grasp this, that our old life has ended, with the score settled, the debt paid, and the law satisfied, we shall want nothing more to do with it. Well, you know, probably my favorite hymn is one written by Mary James in the late 19th century, All for Jesus. Sometimes we sing it here. It's the hymn of uh, both the college and seminary of our denomination, and both of which I attended. And so it's got a special place in my heart. I can still uh, hear and see the organist, Dr. Freiberg, pulling out all the stops as he slowed down the final stanza with all of those covenant students singing it at the top of their lungs. And you know, really, all, all of its lyrics, all for Jesus, all of the lyrics, they resonate with this passage. But I'd like us to close by uh, reading just the final two verses. Listen to what they say. Since mine eyes were fixed on Jesus, I've lost sight of all beside. So enchained my spirit's vision, looking at the crucified. Oh, what wonder, how amazing. Jesus, glorious King of kings, deigns to call me his beloved. Let's me rest beneath his wings. Let's pray. Almighty God, we... We bow uh, in amazement at your love, your kindness to sinners. Amazing grace you have bestowed on us. Father, we ask that you, by your spirit, will remind us daily of who we are. That we were dead, but we have been made alive that we are united to the risen and living King Jesus. And Lord, we ask that you will empower us to walk in faithfulness and walk in step with the Spirit. We pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen.